What does God think of you? How does God feel about you? Even in the midst of and despite your failures. What if they're big, colossal failures? In culture today, if you fail in a big way, that's it. You're done. Right? You're just cast out. You're gutter trash. You're, dis, you're totally discarded, never to be trusted again, never to be revered again. The only person in the world who loves you is your mom. And even she's kind of iffy about you. What, what does God think of you after the big colossal mistake? We will see what God thinks of one of the judges. I hope this is one of the best sermons you've ever heard in your life on Jephthah. This guy never really gets talked about. It's hard to find a sermon on Jephthah. And so I want to show you Bible-wide where we are in the book of Judges and what God thinks of Jephthah. It's going to sound like I am beating Jephthah up. But what I'm really doing is just expositing what the, the Word of God says. And at the end, you may be surprised to hear God's opinion of Jephthah. May it reflect God's opinion of you. So as I draw from multiple passages throughout the Bible, there's a QR code right here that you can use to just have all the cross-references right there with you. You can also go to redemptionwashington.com, redemptionwashington.com, and you can click on program right at the top. That's also where you'll find the group member study guide for this week for your small group. My small group is meeting at my house tonight. I don't think I'm going to have my deck ready in time. I'm going to try. But we're going to go through the session that is written specifically to follow this sermon. And all the cross-references that help you understand this sermon are all available right here at this QR code. Here's Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, just to catch us up on something. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? So Gideon, the judge we studied last week, is in charge, and the Ephraimites, all right, or sometimes it's called Ephraim or Ephraim. I'm going to say Ephraim and Ephraimites. The, the men of Ephraim said, Why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? This is not the last time you're going to hear this from these guys. And you'll see, you'll see in a devotion coming up this week that this may have been disingenuous. Why'd you leave us out of the fighting? Why'd you show up after the fight was over? <laughs> Twice. Okay, just watch, just watch. So he said to them, what have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God handed over to you Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Median. What was I able to do compared to you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. Do you see what I'm saying? When he appealed to their ego, they were appeased, which tells me it was disingenuous. Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Succoth, please give me some loaves of bread to the troops, uh, give, give some loaves of bread to the troops under my command because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Succoth asked, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Gideon replied, Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmunna over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing from them. The men of Penuel answered, just as the men of Succoth had answered. He also said to the men of Penuel, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and with them was their army of about 15,000 men, who were all those left of the entire army of the people of the east. Those who had been killed were 120,000 armed men. Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked their army while the army felt secure. Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them. He captured these two kings of Midian and routed the entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. He captured a youth from the men of Succoth and interrogated him. The youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 leaders and elders of Succoth. He's a very good memory. 
Then he went to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. You taunted me about them saying, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They were like you, they said. Each resembled the son of a king. So he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Zeba and Zalmunna said, get up and strike us down yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. This is the remainder of the text that we saw last week. We didn't have time for. You can see that it's a violent era. The motto, the prime axiom of the culture of the day was everyone did what seemed right to him. Some translations render it, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Seems like a nice motto, right? Seems fair until what's right in my eyes is to take what's yours. Then suddenly you may object, but on what basis? What's right for you may not be right for me. You violated my rights by not letting me take what's yours. Do you see the innate, innately fallacious nature of relativism? There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is God's truth, and we've all fallen short of it, and we need grace we need repentance. When everyone does what is right in his own eyes, this is what happens. Blood is shed, comparative innocence are lost, and then, it's no coincidence, sexual crimes increase. Just see what happens as we continue through this book. We must, as we interpret the text of Jephthah, distinguish between what the Spirit of God convicts us to do, which leads always to repentance from sin or protection from sin, versus what a demonic unction would deceive us into doing, leading to an act that is an abomination in God's sight. The, the players in this text are, are peoples introduced in Genesis. The descendants of Abraham were divided upon the scandal with Hagar and Sarah in Genesis. Hagar birthed Ishmael and Sarah birthed Isaac. In Genesis 25, Abraham took another wife named Keturah and she birthed Midian. Those are the ones with whom Gideon was at war. The Ishmaelites and Midianites were cousins living in community and intermarrying, so the terms Ishmaelites and Midianites are interchangeable, both in Genesis 37 and in the story of Gideon, which sets the context for today's text. Here is Judges chapter 10, verse 14. All right, your curriculum covers the events of chapter 10, which the people of God repent as they are oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites, uh, uh, the Ammonites oppressed them for 18 years. This brings us to Judges chapter 10 under the oppression of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. But the Israelites said, we have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only rescue us today. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshiped the Lord and he became weary of Israel's misery. The Ammonites were called together and they camped in Gilead. So the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The rulers of Gilead said to one another, which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the stage is set for a new military leader. Who's gonna lead the men? Who's gonna be in charge here? All right, the, the spirit of God is gonna come upon the least likely, as he often does. The one who would lead Gilead would be one of Gilead's sons, but he would be one of Gilead's sons who had been cast out, who had been rejected, because he was the son of a prostitute. And so this pariah was off in the land of Tob. He was leading raids against the Ammonites. So as he's cast out, his military skills are honed. 
he is rejected by his people due to circumstances completely beyond his control. You can tell he's got a bone to pick. He's got a chip on his shoulder. But while he's in the land of Tob, away from his hometown of Gilead, he's also becoming more and more fierce as a military leader. Here is Judges chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. Sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. So, all of a sudden, they want Jephthah back. They didn't want him at first because of something that was beyond his control. And now, when they're, when they're in the hot seat, when they're under fire, they want the skills that Jephthah has obtained while he's been out in the wilderness. This casting out of Jephthah has actually made Jephthah stronger. Meanwhile, his brothers are just a bunch of fat house cats. They haven't had to go to war. They haven't had to fight. My skeptical friend, as we continue in the story, you need to know something. You may have heard of ascetic Christians or Christians who willingly forego their right to certain things, and that sounds more righteous. Okay, you have the typical Christian, but then you see this other Christian who abstains from eating pork, and you're like, hmm, it sounds like that Christian's more righteous. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with pork, but I mean, at first glance, it just seems like the non-swine eater is more righteous. I don't know why, but he evidently is more disciplined because he doesn't eat pork. That includes bacon. How does one live? I don't know if I'm ready for Christianity. To the uninformed eye, the Christian who just adheres to the word of God, and then the Christian who adheres to the word of God plus some other made-up restriction, that might seem more righteous. Do not be deceived by this. Do not be deceived by this. Okay, we're going to read a story about human sacrifice in the Old Testament, which God never required. I hope you view it through the lens of the one sacrifice God ever required, the sacrifice of himself. Take a look at this slide. Do we have the, uh, the Jephthah versus Jesus slide ready to go? Take a look at this. I, I want to begin by just comparing Jephthah with Jesus. Right? The, 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 the absolutely critical differences between the two. For one thing, you're going to see that Jephthah was completely ignoring Scripture in his actions. Jesus fulfilled Scripture by his birth, by his every word, by his life. Jephthah is going to try to look righteous. Okay, my liberal friend, I know you got to be so sick of virtue signaling. Like, it's never enough, right? Oh, great, what's the next crisis that I got to tweet out so everybody knows this bad thing is bad. And if I don't say bad thing is bad, then people will think that I think the bad thing is good, and I can't have that. I got to run my own PR campaign. Please, call me virtuous. <sighs> okay, good. And then the headline pops up, what now? And I've got a virtue signal again. That's got to be exhausting. It's going to be so exhausting. But you know that Christians can sometimes get caught up in our own Christian version of that. It's like righteousness signaling. That's kind of what Jephthah's going to get caught up. He's going to try to look righteous by what he's doing. Jesus, however, on the cross was actually righteous. Jephthah is going to sacrifice someone else in this text. Jesus sacrificed himself. Jephthah committed sin by his actions. But Jesus atoned for the sins of all who believe in him by his actions. So we're going to look at a convert, we can look at the converse of Jephthah as Jesus, but at the end of this, we're going to compare our own hearts and our own lives to what we learn about Jephthah in this text. Here's Judges chapter 11, 
okay? You're going to see some debates start up, and you're going to see some guys in this text make some claims that we know, based on what came earlier in Scripture, are not historically accurate. Can you relate to that? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen somebody just stand in front of a camera and just make something up? It still happens today, doesn't it? It still happens today. Here's Judges chapter 11, verse 6. They said to him, Come, be our commander, and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, Didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? They answered Jephthah, That's true, but now we turn to you. Come fight with us. Fight the Ammonites, and you will become the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So remember this promise that's made, okay? You'll become, you'll become the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. Remember, remember what Jephthah's father's name was? Gilead. So Jephthah said to him, if you're bringing me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is our witness. If we don't do as you say, okay? So Jephthah went, with the elders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander, and Jephthah repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. So both parties in this shaky negotiation, they're using the Lord's name to support their claims. Meanwhile, God's on his own side. People can be incorrect while claiming the name of God. Just watch, just watch. So, verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites asking, what do you have against me that you have come to fight me in my land? Okay, let's look at this right here because this is, these are loaded words. See that? My land. You're going to get to know a lot about Jephthah in this negotiation. The king of the Ammonites said to Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. All right, we already have some issues here. We already have some stuff that's incorrect. Right, when, when Jephthah says, my land, and the king of the Ammonites says, my land, right, they're, they're both actually kind of incorrect. Do you, to, to talk about the land of Israel and who lives there and who owns it to this day is a loaded term. But the truth is that it was claimed by other people, Canaanites who worshiped false gods and Israel who worships the one true God lays claim to it. They have possession of this land to this day. But I'm going to say something that would get a news anchor fired. The modern borders of Israel are still not correct. Check Ezekiel there's still more territory that God gave to Israel that doesn't currently fit within the borders. See, that's a loaded term right there. That'll get you in trouble. That'll get an anchor fired just for saying that. But just read Ezekiel. So who had claim to the land first? Well, these Canaanites, whom God had warned for four centuries, repent from this. Please stop murdering your children with fire. Please stop committing incest. Please stop committing rape. For 400 years, the warning was coming. The warning was coming. The warning was coming. And we know that God doesn't give empty warnings. God doesn't give impotent threats for wrath. He always follows, follows through. Ask everyone who went swimming at the start of the flood. Ask everyone who wasn't in Lot's family who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't make empty threats. And he, go, he gave them four centuries to repent of atrocities. They're cataloged in Leviticus 18. And so God, as he did in the flood, as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, as he will do in the beginnings of the woes prophesied in Revelation chapter 11, gave people chance after chance after chance after chance to repent and then poured out his wrath exactly as he said he would do. But even as he pours out his wrath, there's always grace. There's always deliverance. In the era of the flood, it was the ark. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was Lot's family. In the case of Revelation 11, it's listening to the testimony of the two witnesses. In this case, it is the people of God worshiping the one true God. Like Rahab, they could have become a 
a part of the nation of God. What's interesting about this particular outpouring of God's wrath, however, as we'll study in our next series, the book of Joshua, was that the instrument by which God poured out his wrath was not rain or fire from the sky. It was the supernaturally protected army of Israel. Now, when Israel took this land, right, by, by, by calling it, the land that, the, uh, by calling it the land that God called it, we see, we see it misrepresented already by the Ammonite king. The Ammonite king called the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, my land, right here in verse 13. But that's not correct. It's not correct. The Amorites were the ones who lived there, not the Ammonites. Hear the difference? Amorite, Ammonite. Totally different nations. This guy doesn't know his own nation's history. The Amorites dwelt there at the time of the Israelites' arrival, not the Ammonites. Here's Numbers chapter 21, verse 21. Israel sent messengers to say to King Sihon of the Amorites, let us travel through your land. We won't go into the fields or the vineyards. We won't drink any well water. We will travel the king's highway until we have traveled through your territory. But Sihon would not let Israel travel through his territory. Instead, he gathered his whole army and went out to confront Israel in the wilderness. When he came to Jahaz, he fought against Israel. Israel struck him with a sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Aha, that's the same land we're talking about in Judges, but only up to the Ammonite border because it was fortified. So these guys are already, already exhibiting ignorance of their history, and ignorance of history can be deadly. Ignorance of history can be deadly. Okay, again, for the people in the back, ignorance of history can be deadly. It is deadly. It is deadly. It is deadly. And we live today in a culture with a confoundingly short memory. These Amorite lands, these are Amorite lands when, when the Israelites arrived, not Ammonite lands. Israel had already been there for over 300 years already. One commentator estimated 480 years they'd already been there. The one true God gave them that land. Their claim was based, uh, the, other, the enemy's claim was based on a lie from a pagan God. So guess who gets the land? Judges 11 verse 14 Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites to tell them, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. That's true. But when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us travel through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. This is true. This is accurate. Israel, Israel, they were not invaders. God told the people of Canaan to repent from their grotesque sins for 400 years before giving their land to his people. And we will see how this plays out in the book of Joshua. But for now, back to Judges, verse 18. Then they traveled through the wilderness and around the lands of Edom and Moab, both of whom they were related to, by the way, distantly. They came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, but did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. Israel said to him, please let us travel through your land to our country. But Sihon would not trust Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sihon gathered all his troops, camped at Jahaz, and fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel handed over Sihon and all his troops to Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the entire land of the Amorites who lived in that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. The Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel, and will you now force us out? Isn't it true that you can have whatever your lowercase g god Chemosh conquers for you? Okay, so this is correct. Right? You'll notice that the G, lowercase g, but here's the thing about our boy Jephthah. They didn't worship Chemosh. They worshiped Molech. Please know your stuff before you get into debate. Please. Especially if it's on the internets. Please, please, please. Isn't it true that you can have whatever your God conquers for you and we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us 
I do kind of like that idea. My God has said this. Your God has said that. Let's see whose God wins. Now, are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? Well, Israel lived 300 years in Heshbon and Arar. This is where this is where I think he may not be totally correct. When I count the number of years back from Solomon, for example, uh, I think it's 480, which actually may, may, means that uh, Jephthah's case is stronger than he knows. Uh, the, the, the years in Heshbon and Aror, that the surrounding villages and all. Uh, sorry, I just covered up my own <laughs> my own note. Uh, and all the, all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, why didn't you take them back at that time? I've not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent him. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. This is pivotal. Every time we see Words like these in the book of Acts, what comes next is awesome. Filled with the Spirit of the Lord, God's going to move. Jephthah is an exception. Jephthah's going to be totally enveloped, as Gideon was, by the Holy Spirit. And then immediately do something colossally stupid. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead, he crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Never prescribed by God never inspired by God, never asked for, not at all, not at all. Biblical ignorance has tremendous consequences. We'll just see exactly how deep these consequences go. This is the only example in all of scripture wherein someone would be covered with the spirit of God and then do something sinful in the subsequent two verses. It was a pagan practice to sacrifice someone, to make a vow to one's own God before going into battle. Not a godly one. Think about this. God promises victory to his people and then his people just go and claim victory. If you serve a God who requires legalistic action, then you gotta bribe your God. God, if you give me victory, I'll do this. That's never, that's never how it works. And watch what happens in the book of Joshua. God just says, go, I've handed them over to you. And they're like, okay, go. There's never any of this like, okay, how much is this going to cost us? God, if you give me victory, I'll do this. God, if this, then that. Making conditional if-then statements before God. That doesn't make any sense. You're not at the negotiating table. He's God. You're less than an ant. Just obey. God's the one who gives the victory. You just go. And to his glory, you seize it. The idea that you would sit down at the negotiating table with the omnipotent creator of the universe and say, all right, let's talk. Like, what do you have to offer God? What, what deal could you offer God that God's like, you know, that's, I could use one of those. That's a good idea. You drive a hard bargain, but uh, I'll take it. No, 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 just shut up. He's God. He says it, and you do it. And then for some reason, Jephthah's like, all right, I got an idea. To prove that you're really with me, I'm going to do what those other kings do, and I'm going to make a vow before I go into battle. I'm going to kill the first person who walks out of my house when I get home. And God's like, I'd never asked you to do that. I mean, can we go back through the text? Anybody see it? Like, raise your hand if that's in your Bible. If so, we got to throw that Bible away and get you a proper Bible. This just came out of Jephthah's own Mensa candidate brain mind head. No one asked him to do this. God never said to do this. It was a pagan practice. And he knew it wasn't going to be a farm animal unless he had a particularly unkempt house. It wasn't going to be some livestock bah, that came out of his house. He even uses the word person right here. He is fully culpable for this. There it is. 
God, I'm going to worship you like a pagan. Like, no one, no one ever asked for that. Okay, this, this, this key word in Jephthah's vow is right here, I believe. If. Right, this was, this is, this is bizarre. It's the very first word of his vow, and it's if. The Spirit of the Lord had come on him in verse 29, and his very first step was to invent an obscure, wickedly unwarranted, completely unsolicited, conditional promise to God, which he, Jephthah, would fulfill if this anointing of the Spirit turned out to be real. Jephthah was evidently very unfamiliar with the Spirit. That was totally unwarranted, wickedly unwarranted. This is the opposite, by the way, of the whole point of a burnt offering. See that, the final words? I'm going to offer that person as a burnt offering. It's idiotic. It's completely, completely antithetical to the whole idea, the very concept, the very purpose, the very intent behind a burnt offering. The whole idea of a burnt offering is a person doesn't have to die. All right, here's, here's the history of what a burnt offering, that's what Jephthah thinks he's offering here. See that burnt offering? Here's what a burnt offering actually is. Genesis chapter four, verse 10, here's the first mention of it. Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is Cain murdering Abel, and then God is about to set the record straight. You don't kill people. Okay, this is the first murder in the history of humanity. And then God describes Abel's blood as crying out to him from the ground. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. This is what God actually said on the idea. For God made humans in his image. Here's the, excuse me, here's the actual first mention of a burnt offering in Scripture. Fast forward to Noah. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So these are animals. These are birds. The idea is this is a symbolic sacrifice that represents my sin. And I deserve to die for my sin, but in my stead, let this burnt offering suffice. The whole idea is that you, a human, don't die for your sin. Okay? That's what a burnt offering actually was. It is idiotic of Jephthah to offer a human as a burnt offering because the point of a burnt offering is that a human being made in the image of God, who is more important than an animal, would not have to die. And the author of Hebrews says that these sacrifices were symbolic. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The real sacrifice was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It cheapens the cross that Jephthah would think he had to sacrifice a human being as a burnt offering. And all of this, bizarrely, just because he wanted to be sure that God was really with him. God said, I'm with you. The Holy Spirit, come upon him. That's all he needed. That's all that he needed. Here's Genesis 22. Here is, all right, look, I, I, I not only know for a fact that God never asked Jephthah to sacrifice someone, I'll give you the one example of a time that God did ask a servant of his to sacrifice someone, and then he called it off for this very reason. It was a testing of Abraham's faith. Genesis 22:10. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. So Jesse, what's the difference between Jephthah and Abraham? Jephthah's an idiot. Abraham was actually asked by God to do this. That's the difference. No one asked Jephthah to do this. Abraham was willing to follow through as a testing of his faith. The author of Hebrews also tells us what Abraham was thinking. He reasoned that God, who creates life, could resurrect the dead. He expected to receive his son back from the dead. Does that sound like anybody else to you? Does that sound familiar to you? It's a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. 
So God never asked Jephthah to sacrifice the first person to walk out the door. By the way, if you're going to do that, maybe tell the people in your house. All right, heading out to battle, the Ammonites. By the way, first person to walk out the door when I get home dies. That just seems like courtesy to me. Here's the Judges 11.32. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. There it is. This is critical. Like we saw in the story of Deborah, like we see in the story of Gideon, any good thing that happens in the book of Judges happens because God made it happen. Okay, who is it that handed the Ammonites over to them? Who is it? Say it with me. The Lord. It's not Jephthah's skills as a raider. It's not his honed craft as an experienced raider. It is the Lord who is at work through all of this. God is the one who gets 100% of the credit here. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Aurora all the way to the entrance of Minith and to Abel Kiramin. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. Can you imagine this from God's perspective? Think about it. Right, we're home and it's time to mow the grass and one of my sons says to me, Father, I make you a vow. I didn't ask you to make a vow, son. I promise thee. We don't talk like that. Why'd you call me thee? When the grasses moan, I will celebrate it by eating our neighbor's cat. Oh, gosh, don't do that. I never said to do that. I've already captured it, Father. Let the cat go. This is a horrible idea. I never asked for this. Not on my mind. The cat shall die. Just mow the grass, please. Gosh. Don't, don't just make stupid vows up before God. Okay, please. Don't just like make up random, unbiblical, unsolicited vows before God. Do you see how that's legalism? See how that's pagan? The classic formula for every pagan religion is God's word plus something else. Okay, when you make up a vow that God never prescribed, you just became a pagan. This is where every false religion comes from. They take what God said and they add on to it. Don't do that. Don't add on to God's word. You become like your own little one-man cult with your own made-up scripture. Okay? Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, here it is. Jephthah has made this vow and the first person to walk out and greet him, as was customary, by the way. Jephthah knew this. When... Conquerors would come home from battle. The women would step out with tambourines and they'd have a party and they'd sing songs to welcome them home. Jephthah, knowing this, made this vow. Here's verse 35. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, no, not my daughter. You have devastated me. Okay, look, do you see how this is an inappropriate use of the word you? This was all Jephthah's idea. You, he does it again, have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. So Jephthah immediately tries to blame other people, okay? You can see that he's, he's sort of blaming God, perhaps in the first you, and in the second you, he could even be directing this at his daughter. You, my daughter, have brought great misery on me. She, she, she's not brought great misery on you. She's brought great tambourine playing on you. That's what she's done. She's not done anything. You, she didn't make up this vow. She, she evidently didn't know you made it. Or she would have been like, I'm not opening this door. 
I'm not going out. Make the dog get out. She didn't know about this vow. So whether Jephthah's talking to God when he says, you have brought great misery on me, or his daughter, either way, he's incorrect because he brought this on himself. You add on to the word of God, you bring misery on yourself. You take a bite of the forbidden fruit. It was the serpent who added on to the word of God. Do not, do not, do not fall for false teachings. The Bible plus the Book of Mormon. The Bible plus the Quran. The Bible plus the Watchtower. Jehovah's Witnesses. The Bible plus anything is the classic formula from the serpent in Eden. Do not add on to the word of God. Who are you to add a letter to what God wrote? You'd be so mad at your mailman who takes your correspondence and is like, mm, I don't like this. I'm going to change and make some edits here and then submits it. How would you feel about that? And the stakes are so much higher here. Do not add a single stroke of the pen onto the word of God. Don't take a single letter out of the word of God. At least be a minimally competent mailman, okay? Don't mess with God's correspondence. He wrote it. Okay, you would be furious if somebody changed what you wrote and delivered it falsely. So don't add on to God's word. Don't make up stupid vows. Don't add on new regulations. It may seem more godly to abstain from certain things or to commit other actions in addition to the gospel, but that is the classic formula for every satanic heresy since Eden. It came up in the book of Acts at the very birth of the New Testament church. From the very beginning of the New Testament church, we've loved the idea of adding things onto the word of God. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's it. There is no confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and abstain from vegetables. What? Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be circumcised as an adult. What? That was literally what happened in the book of Acts. That idea right there. Don't make up your own vows because it's also possible God may hold you to them. Because if you're of genuine thought that it's a sin for me to do this thing and then I do this thing, or it's a sin for me to not do this thing and I do this thing, is that not, in a sense, willful sin? Now, the beautiful thing is, your word has no authority compared to the word of God. You are culpable for what God said, what the Spirit convicts you to do. Do not add on to the word of God. Jephthah is doing everything he can to avoid accountability for his own sin. When we start making up vows, it only brings misery. Pray for a family to whom my family is ministering. The mother in this family is under a strong delusion. She left a solid biblical teaching church, went to a church that just kind of teaches whatever, and they told her, you are an elder. Now, the leadership of this church is telling her, you need to leave your husband and your kid. And the Lord is with you in this. Faithful husband, she has not been. He wants to reconcile with her. It is a colossal mess. And it began with this unbiblical vow, do you see? When you step away from the word of God, there's only trouble. There's only trouble I do think that that lie of spousal abandonment is one of the most common New Testament current examples. I speak with couples who are on the brink and one of them seems genuinely convinced that it's okay to have an unbiblical divorce from his or her spouse. And it's so hard to dissuade this person of this. They come under a strong delusion. This is what I see the enemy doing in our context. Okay, listen, listen. If a spirit tells you to abandon your spouse, it's not the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible is clear. There's only one justification for a biblical divorce, and that's not even a requirement for a divorce. Spousal abandonment seems to be sort of the Jephthah-style vow that people are making, like, God told me to do this. And it's, it creeped me out the time I spoke with a man who was dead set on leaving his wife and his children. He said, I have a peace about it. I said, that's the scariest thing I've ever heard, that you have a peace about setting off a nuclear bomb in your life and your wife's life and your kid's life, and you have a peace about it? Don't take extra biblical vows. Okay, if you're under a similar delusion attempting to cloak the whole sin in some sort of pseudo-biblical, meaning satanic rationale, surrounding yourself with weak Christians who affirm you in this vow that you made up, they affirm your hell-born idea, you are Jephthah right now in this room. Wake up and read the text with me. So, his daughter wants to mourn. She wants to grieve. Verse 38, go, he said. And he sent her away two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he had made about her. And she had never been intimate with the man. Now it became a custom in Israel that four days each year, the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. I'm fascinated by a certain traffic bumper that exists here in Washington. I've never seen it in other states. It's sort of this like elongated pyramidal bumper curb thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's this elongated structure that's right there in the middle of the street between the lanes, and it's basically just like a little pyramid ramp thing. Okay, it's not, not the painted lines or the little reflectors that help you see where the line is when it's raining or at night and shining and all that stuff. You got, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. The little pyramid thing that just shows up, it's a few feet off the ground. It looks like a little ramp between the lanes and the roads here in Washington. Those fascinate me because... They do not stop one car from going into oncoming traffic head-on. They just ensure that it's airborne when it does. Now, I'm sure there's a civil engineer who could sit down and explain to me exactly why they put ramps between the lanes. But what's, what's striking is that it's intended to protect... It's intended to protect. That's, Jephthah was supposed to look after the people of Israel. And instead, he, by his own hand and by his own vow, kills the one I am sure he wanted to protect the most. This protective measure has completely backfired. Jephthah's comparatively innocent daughter gives us a slight, albeit distorted, glimpse of what Jesus did. Okay, I won't spend too much time on this because um, it's a stretch, but it's just barely there enough to consider like how she willingly, after two months, participates in the sacrifice. And it seems like a glimpse of the cross through a darkly dystopian haunted funhouse mirror, but there's a slight similarity. She, the father's only child, died because of someone else's sin. Do you see what I'm talking about? You get just like a tiny glimpse, maybe, a slight foreshadowing here. Now, what Jephthah has done is an abomination. Wholly different from what Abraham did. Abraham was actually asked by God to sacrifice his child. Abraham foreshadowed God the Father. Jephthah was a study in what not to do. Abraham received his child back and was granted many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. Jephthah's line ends with the events of this text. His daughter was his only child. There are numerous examples of modern day vows that are unbiblical that we may add on to scripture. All right, in Acts chapter 10, verse nine, for example, any kind of dietary restriction, unbiblical, okay? If you made a vow before God to abstain from a certain food because you genuinely feel, and you're legalistic about this. You think that other people who eat the thing that you don't eat, that they're sinning? That's legalism? 
feel like your salvation is somehow contingent upon your adherence to your own made-up vow, look at Acts chapter 10. The next day, as they were traveling nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, here's my life verse, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Amen? Eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, because that's how Peter learned things. And suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. We know that there are other legalistic vows that will add on to scripture that may be dietary in nature. First Timothy chapter four, verse one. Now the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage. This is something that Catholic priests do. Here it is, spelled out patently in the word of God. God never asked them to take a vow of celibacy to become a priest. In fact, The idea of forbidding marriage is explicitly called out as demonic in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Jesse, did you just call a teaching of the Catholic Church demonic? Yep, God did. Right here, even the example of forbidding marriage is explicit in the word of God. Not the word of the dude with the funny hat. I don't care how pointy it is. Doesn't make him more right. means he has to duck when he goes through doorways. I don't have to do that. I stand before the Lord, a faithful husband. He takes a vow of celibacy and then children suffer. You see, when we add on to the word of God, we make up vows that God never prescribed. People suffer. That's what happens. They forbid marriage. Okay, that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Do you hear me? Catholic church. Here it is, explicit. Right there, the forbidding of marriage is called out as teaching of demon. And they demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So my skeptical friend, the idea that this Christian abstains from things, and it may seem like that Christian's more righteous than the other one, here's what God actually said about it. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. It's explicit and it's clear. If God has, a, has laid a certain conviction on your heart to abstain from something, then do that. But keep that between you and God. Don't project that out as a legalism. Understand that your salvation is completely independent of your abstinence from sugar. Your waistline may have a direct correlation with the rate at which you consume sugar, but it has nothing to do with the condition of your soul. In fact, your soul may be happier than mine. Right? And also, we see this in Colossians. There are certain, there are certain prescriptions for Sabbath days. Entire denominations are built around the conviction, the added vow that we will worship the God on this particular day instead of that one. Saturday is the Sabbath, strictly speaking. But since the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament church has been meeting on Sundays. And yet there are some strong convictions about what day of the week you should worship on. Here's what Colossians 2 says. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a, say this word with me, Redemption Church, Sabbath day. Okay, there it is. Colossians 2, verse 16. These are a shadow of what is to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting ascetic practices, meaning if you feel the need to abstain from certain things, you do that. Uh, like don't, don't, don't let anyone condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices, meaning you think you're more righteous because of your aesthetic practices. And then he goes on to even list the worship of angels. Okay, don't be condemned because you worship angels. Don't be condemned because you think that your asceticism saves you. There, there are monks who deliberately wear uncomfortable clothing because they feel like that makes them more righteous. Don't be condemned by that nonsense. This makes you itch. Congrats, that's what you get. 
itchiness. You're welcome. They claim access to a visionary realm. No, you don't. You don't have that. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. Couldn't this have been written yesterday? They don't hold on to the head from which the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to the regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Don't take a Jephthah-style extra-biblical vow. Now, beware. As I said before, it very well could be that if you do make such a vow before God, that God may hold you to it. Because if you commit an act that you, by your own standard, have called sinful, listen to what Romans 14 says. Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. <laughs> Sorry, my vegetarian friends. One who is weak eats only vegetables. Three animals have to die a day for me to live. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble for the joke I just made now. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. My Seventh-day Adventist friends. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be the Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will give praise to God. Do you hear that, my skeptical friend? You're gonna have the chance to confess Jesus is Lord in just a minute here. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. Do you see? Be careful what vows you make before the Lord. If you consider a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. Listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone else fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Can we say those words together real quick? Redemption Church, say it with me. Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. Again, like Jephthah, be careful what you vow, because the Lord just may hold you to it. Instead, don't make vows. Just don't make vows. Here's James 5, 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven, by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no, so that you will not fall under judgment. Don't make stupid vows. Now, what about Jephthah? What happens to Jephthah? Our devotions this week will tell you what comes next. 
But here's what Hebrews 11 says that God thinks about Jephthah. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon. We know him, right? All right, when I, when I say a name that you've heard in this series, say, I know him, okay? So there's Gideon, Barak. All right, you don't know Samson yet, but you will. Some of you have read it before. If you know him, say, I know him. That's next week. All right, here's the one we read today, Jephthah. These are all in the book of Judges. Have they, have they been perfect judges? <laughs> Not even remotely close. But look, at, look as the text continues what God says about these guys. That includes Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. It is really, really amazing. Verse 38 says, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. This is what God thinks of Jephthah. This is how God feels about this judge who made the most boneheaded, wickedly unprescribed vow in all of Scripture. So what does God think of you after your big, colossal, boneheaded failure? Have you done what Jephthah did? Have you made a public vow to sacrifice a child who's alive and walks out the door of your house? No, no. Look at what God thinks of Jephthah. This is how Scripture in the New Testament recalls Jephthah. I know this is totally counterintuitive to a cancel culture. When somebody makes a mistake, we just discard them forever. But this is how God feels about Jephthah. How does God feel about you? Take a look at this slide as we close. We started by looking at Jephthah and Jesus. Now let's compare ourselves to Jephthah. And I want you, if you're convicted by the Holy Spirit of God in this, to confess sin, to be saved, to confess Jesus as Lord, right? We know that Jephthah was ignoring Scripture. He was trying to look righteous. He sacrificed someone else, and he committed sins by his actions. But, but you, in contrast, you have heard Scripture today, and you now know that you are not righteous you may lay your life down today and do the opposite of what Jephthah did. You may be completely forgiven right now for all of your big, giant, colossal, boneheaded mistakes. Every last one of them. God redeemed Jephthah. Just imagine what he can do through you right now. That spirit, that inkling, that idea that it might be okay after all, that you could stand before God and be loved, be forgiven, be redeemed. That he would say of you that the world is not worthy of someone like you after all the things you've done. Yeah, but Jesse, you don't know what I've done. I know what Jephthah did, and I know that God loves Jephthah. Repent every last sin today. Be atoned for completely by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right now, right now, not tomorrow, not even after church, right now, because the Spirit of God is moving right now. So stand with me and pray with me. If you need prayer for anything else in your life or anyone else in your life, come down and meet the prayer team right here. But I wanna pray with you if you see your reflection in Jephthah and you know, you know you need this grace of God. Pray with me right now, Lord, I look at the story of Jephthah and I gotta be honest, I see myself. I've been making up stuff to seem righteous. I've been ignorant of what scripture teaches. I've, I've hurt others. I've tried to virtue signal. I've been ignorant of scripture and I've been hurting other people and none of it's worked. None of it's been to any avail at all. I choose Jesus because the Holy Spirit of God has made it so abundantly clear on my heart right now. I confess it. Jesus is Lord. Lord, I'm just like Jephthah. I have sinned. I'm just like Jephthah. I've been trying to put on a good show. I'm just like Jephthah. I need grace. I need the gift of God. 
eternal life for all who are in Christ. I know that Jephthah was just a judge, and I know that Jesus is the ultimate judge right here, and now I'm convinced of the truth. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And there's no way someone like me or Jephthah could ever get before God the Father if it were not for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God, right now I confess the truth. Jesus is Lord. If the Holy Spirit of God has convicted your heart today, if you know that this is true today, would you say, Jesus is Lord, Redemption Church? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Saved in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.